what's uh, what's on your mind? Um, if you want to know, the magnificent Ambersons. Really? Why? Yeah. Pardon? Why? That was his second film. That was his second film, and he always blamed it for the end of his career in the studios. Um, but, but in fact, uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst wrote him out of town about uh, Citizen Kane, which was his first film. Well, that that's true. But uh, despite that, uh, Archeo funded the Magnificent Ambersons for a million dollar budget, which was incredible after Citizen Kane. So he wasn't <laughs> completely out of town. But the, the history of how he lost control of that film and how it got butchered from a 135-minute running time to 88 minutes. Um, and whether whether or not he is to blame in some respects for what happened to the film is a fascinating story. So do you think he was to blame for it? or He was, uh, he was partially to blame. It's a complex story. Uh, a guy named... Robert Carringer wrote a book a, a few uh, a few years ago called The Magnificent Ambersons, A Reconstruction, in which he interviewed everybody surviving that had anything to do with the film um, and uh, anyone who knew anything about Wells. And he also had access to RKO's cutting continuity for the film before it was butchered. And he tries to reconstruct what the film was in um, in Wells's cut, mm -hmm. the, the the really interesting uh, premise of Carringer is that the the biggest and most harmful cuts to the film were actually ordered by Wells himself because he was uncomfortable with the Oedipal conflict between the main character and himself. Mm. Um, this is, I think, the only one of Wells's films where he did not cast himself as the main character. Um, although he had done a radio adaptation of the film, the main character. Um, and uh, and Carrington goes into a great deal of information that I never had before about Wells's early life and his relationship with his mother and his father. And there are some very uncomfortable autobiographical elements in the Ambersons. Um, you know, he goes through some of the ways that Wells's adaptation altered the original source material, Booth Tarkington's novel, um, and his. Uh, so that was that was the first big problem. The second issue was uh, just as shooting stopped, he accepted an invitation from the State Department to go to South America and make some films to support the alliance with Latin American countries. And so he was out of town, um, left the film in the hands of his associates, none of whom had the clout to go up against the studio. And um, as a result of the cuts that Wells himself ordered just before the first preview, the film previewed horribly. And Interestingly, Robert Wise, before the second preview, restored those cuts, and the film had a much better reception. 
So he was the, this is when he was the editor of, uh, of many films. What was the, did, did he? Yeah, well, so Wise edited Citizen Kane. Right. And he was also the editor on Ambersons. Um, he was not yet a director, but he did get to direct some of the reshoots mm. um, that, that Wells had ordered in his absence. It's a very, very screwy story. And uh, and Wells is at least partially complicit for what happened to the picture. I mean, you know, if you're going to accept that he was complicit in the uh, genius of Citizen Kane, then I guess you have to uh, uh, look at the downside, too. I mean, he essentially he made a, a great film and then burned out over many, many years. Well, he made this. Ambersons has some of the surviving sequences are just brilliant. It could have been a better film than Citizen Kane. Um, but, you know, it was Wells who made the decision to cast Tim Holt in the, in the, in the role of George Amberson or George Minifer. And uh, Tim Holt was just not well received by the audience. And, uh, and Wells made a lot of decisions that proved problematic in, in the way audiences accepted the film. So at the end of the day, having a, a million dollar film that the studio felt would never play uh, to save it, they said, they, they, they turned to Wise and said, do what you can to save the picture. And uh, Wise did not necessarily make wise choices. Yeah, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the sophomore jinx is, uh, is a difficult barrier. Absolutely, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure Wells was thinking about that. So you know, but, the, uh, you know the the thing about well Orson Wells is is that uh, I mean, for, to me, the uh, Citizen Kane was as much about uh, film structure and uh, uh, you know the deep focus uh, photography that uh, the cameraman. Director of photography did uh, was it Greg Tolan? Yes. yes, it was yeah. Greg Tolan. Uh, these were, you know, uh, th this was a technology uh, transition uh, that was occurring, and Wells got himself uh, through the Mercury Theater and uh, War of the Worlds. I think broadcast. He got himself into a pop culture situation where he could actually pull off something that. Uh, uh, many uh, or most couldn't. Well, he, he was able to write a contract that gave him final cut, which uh, was pretty much unheard of in the studio system. Archeo was buying the legend he had created for himself in the theater and on radio. Um, the, the deep focus stuff was stuff that Greg Tolan had already pioneered with other filmmakers, uh, including John Ford in, uh, in Stagecoach. Uh, but, but Wells, that's why Wells hired him and Wells pushed him on it. Mm -hmm. and but in, in many respects, uh, it was, it was not a technology in transition. It was uh, a side, a sidebar because uh, it, you know, it enabled Wells to stage scenes almost as though they were theatrical because he was able to use 
all parts of the sets and, and have and and nobody before or since did that very right. much. Right. But that 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 um, you know what I'm saying about the technology moment is that I'm not trying to force feed uh, technology into the conversation. I'm simply saying that why one of the things that was magical to me about Citizen Kane was, I mean, as you just pointed out, uh, the first time you ever saw a ceiling, uh, because up until then, in order to get enough light onto a set, you basically had to light it from above. Yes. Um, it, it was... Uh... I don't know if it was the first time you saw a ceiling, but it was. It it is notable for seeing a lot of ceilings. And uh, you know, to me, that is reminiscent of the change that occurred in terms of uh, you know the new wave in the '60s, which were uh, coincident with a uh, you know low low light or somewhat low light, uh, very uh, lightweight camera environment uh, the airflex uh i think it was first the beaulieu which was a handheld uh, but very noisy camera so it was used by among others the italians who post dubbed everything uh but the, the airflex uh, allowed for uh the ability to be able to have the camera in the room as opposed to having to build another room for the camera uh, at the beginning of sound. So, uh, yes. and, and I think this, you know, this fostered a whole bunch of uh, kinds of filmmaking, including uh, uh, Don, uh, what's his name, the uh, 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 documentary filmmaker who did the Dylan film and uh, the Maisel's brothers. Pennybaker. Yeah, Don Pennybaker. And, uh, you know, all, then that migrated over into uh, the style, the French style of you know Truffaut and Eric Romer and other uh, directors that basically uh, uh, you know honored. I mean, the the great classic book uh, in that time was uh, uh, the conversation between Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, and you know just just to try and button this up a little bit, the the thing about Hitchcock that I always was uh, impressed with and alternatively uh, somewhat uh, bored by, which was his, uh, he basically cut everything in, uh, in the, uh, he shot everything uh, uh, so that the studio couldn't take final cut away from him. He would shoot a, right. a you know, a master shot. Yes, he he, he pre-edited he pre-edited his movies in uh, in storyboard and shot to his storyboards meticulously, except except for a few cases that have been documented that he got extra coverage and allowed a small amount of improvisation. But for the most part, he knew exactly what the finished film was supposed to look like before he rolled the first shot. So the the question about uh, Wells is is was he his own worst enemy basically? Um, you know that that that's one interpretation of his life. Um, you know, Bogdanovich gives him more credit than that. Um, but once he once he couldn't get uh, studio financing for a major picture, uh, everything just turned a little bit squirrely. 
and he did a lot of shooting in Europe, a lot of places where um, he really couldn't get good sound, and he, he overdubbed many parts of the film and the editing. Um, but he made some great films in under those circumstances. Uh, they're just not commercial success. Mm. Uh, did he direct Touch of Evil? Yes, mm -hmm. uh, he did. And that was a that was one of the things that he sneaked through because it was a low budget B picture, and um, so they they gave him the money for it because it wasn't that much money, um, and he and uh, then they they took it away and butchered it, and it was only recut according to his notes much later. Um, so the when the after after he after he had died the film that we that we know is that uh, the recut or is it the original? Uh, it depends when you saw it. The, the the one that's in circulation now is the recut, mm. uh, the restoration. But uh, the first time I saw it, that it was not the re restoration. So how does the uh, how do we uh, pivot or continue from uh, this discussion into other things that uh, have some interest, uh, such as, well, I, I, I mentioned to you that I'm interested in the whole Apple, uh, sort of Apple Prime idea uh, and, what, and what that could augur. I think that there is a relationship between what we are now calling uh, you know, the sort of binge uh, transition in terms of filmmaking uh, and what we were just talking about. And then there's also, uh, we're what, at 18 days or 17 days to the uh, midterms. So uh, take your pick. Well, here's one transition. Um, Orson Welles, like some people on the stage today, was a notorious liar who created his own history. Tell me about that. Um, well, he, he uh, and again, I'm going, I'm going by Carringer's uh, research. Um, he had a very odd childhood and uh, not a very happy one. Uh, and he told his, uh, when he would tell his life story, he always skipped over his childhood and told stories from the perspective that he was always an adult. He never had a child, he was never a child. And he kind of idealized what was going on. But his, uh, his father um, was, was a very successful entrepreneur before Wells was born and then he went into decline. Um, and he left very early. I think Wells was, uh, was, was still a, a toddler when his father left. And he was raised by his mother um, uh, you know the, the actual details and the uh, the emotional uh, pinnings to his youth are stuff that he just kept a big blanket over, and uh, and projected himself as always a prodigy, always brilliant, always speaking in complete sentences, in Shakespearean syntax. I see. So uh, I don't see how that relates to uh, Trump, which uh, uh, would be the current notorious liar, right? 
Yes. Well, in many different, you know, what the, what the rabbis say when they discuss comparisons that don't really work, they say, lahavdil, meaning uh, understanding this is not really a good parallel. I see. Um, so it's a, it's a transition. Or, or the Latin says, mutatis uh, mutandis, the necessary changes having been made. If you just, uh, if you recognize like this was, this was a bad metaphor to begin with, you can have it. <laughs> Well, thanks for that. I appreciate it. So, uh, you know, uh, we've got just a few days. Uh, what do you, what's your sense uh, on uh, the Sunday before the two-week uh, deadline? Isn't it two weeks? Yes, yeah. it is. It'll, it'll be Tuesday. Two, uh, two Tuesdays, yes. What's your sense? Uh, well, you know, it's very hard to know because our, um, our media finds uh, value in making things look tighter than they are. The media finds value in, in, in reporting things as a horse race. Yeah, I, w- and, I would suggest that, that they may think that they're finding value, but I think they're damaging their brand. Yes, but they, they believe they're finding value. They believe they're getting viewers and clicks by doing it, by making things as exciting as possible. It's It's hard to know, really. You know, a lot of the Early data coming in is that early voting is off the charts. Registration is off the charts. Uh, and um, mail-ins are off the charts. So there seems to be a huge amount of interest in this election for a midterm. And, it, of course, the, until the votes are counted, you don't know who's been, who has this interest and who is excited. But uh, I'm, uh, it, it may be that Trump has roused his own base, or it may be that people who have been excited and aroused about this since Trump's election two years ago uh, are the ones who are showing up. I hope it's the latter. Well, I find uh, some of the signals uh, that, for example, some of the, uh, you know, Fox, for example, not showing uh, many or most of uh, his uh, roadshow. I find that... uh, to be interesting, not because I think that they're trying to set policy, but because I think they're reacting to the lousy ratings that it's getting. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, I think he has jumped the shark. I think I think he's reached the boredom level and he's he's going for more and more outrage. But, he, you know, the media still falls for it. Um, the other day he said at a rally that the congressman who body slammed a reporter is his kind of guy. And that got a huge amount of coverage. It was all over. Um, Because the media is always looking for giving him a chance to show how outrageous he is. And he takes them on. Right. But, you know, as a viewer, uh, I see that once and I'm, you know, concerned because I'm not looking, I'm not happy about the possibility that that's swinging in the, uh, uh, momentum, but uh, you know, once I've seen it once, it's just irritating when I see it over and over again. Yes. So I think that is the fundamental change. You know, we're going to wake up uh, uh, the following day, and we're going to have a media climate that's uh, going to be, regardless of which way it goes, is going to be altered. You know, the Marx Brothers film, A Day at the Races. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's great, great film. So. Uh... There is, a, there is a villain, 
and they make the horse run faster by showing him a picture of the villain. <laughs> yes. And, and right, it's like every time they show the horse the picture of the villain, right? he he runs faster. And then you know, at the last minute, the wind blows the picture out of uh, Harpo's hand. So Groucho runs up to the play-by-play booth and grabs the microphone and sticks it in front of the villain so the horse hears the villain's voice over the PA system at the track. And that helps him win the, win the race. And I always think about that when I think about Trump because I think if, you know, there are a whole lot of people who every time they hear his voice or see his face are running faster to get to the polls. Yeah, the, the, the downside of that is, is that the, it's the same number of people. Well, we don't know. You know, and and uh, I I don't have access to real good data. I just you know have have the same same polls that everybody else is reporting. So who knows? And, and everyone was so upset about 2016. Uh, everybody's hedging their bets and whatever predictions they're making, and they're all saying I could be wrong. So I don't have the data to to make a, right. a real but prediction. The difference is is that uh, in 2016 we had no idea that it was uh, completely wrong. Right. Uh, now we're, if anything, we may be over uh, concerned about that. Yes. And I, you know, I think there, there are a number of new, unique things about 2016. The, uh, the campaign of vilification of Hillary Clinton. Uh, I mean, she, with her emails and her Goldman Sachs speeches, presented an opportunity to just keep hammering and and that was managed very well to her detriment. I don't think there's anything like that today. You know, they they do they all keep saying Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, but uh, I don't think there's nothing you can say about Nancy Pelosi that corresponds to Goldman Sachs speeches and the emails, which is really what and 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 a husband who's a philanderer. I mean, that's that's what made the campaign of vilification against Hillary resonate with so many people. Yeah, there's something to this. Yeah, I, I, I think that there was an undercurrent of people uh, intuiting that, I mean, she could have just basically published the, uh, the speeches that she gave. She absolutely should have. I don't, you know, I don't, right. know, I don't know why she had that instinct to be secretive about everything. Well, I think that that goes to, you know, one of Trump's uh, real skills, I think, unfortunately, is that he he sort of spots uh, weakness and then amplifies it. Uh, yes. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it was pretty clear what she needed to do, but I felt that, in general, the Democrats at that point had this kind of arrogance that uh, they were good people and therefore right. what they do is going to be good. And uh, yes. And, and of course they had, they had polling that showed that Trump was the candidate in the entire history of presidential elections with the highest disapproval ratings. Unfortunately, the candidate they ran against him had the second highest disapproval ratings. So uh, let's let's uh, wind this down with uh, a discussion about what do you think is going on with Apple? Uh, I don't know. I'm very intrigued with this notion that they are uh, going to take all of the video product that they're commissioning and bundle it in with with their hardware products. 
I mean, that, that's I don't know if that's true, but it sounds like you automatically are in Apple Prime if you buy an Apple product, which I think will uh, be a good thing if the product is good. Well, I mean, that's essentially what happened uh, with uh, Amazon Prime is, is that if, if you bought anything on Amazon, pretty much it became less expensive to just uh, you know, get the shipping for free, and then they threw right. in the the video uh, to to get the audience, which was, uh, you know, a direct uh, copy, if you will, of, uh, of what Netflix has done. Yes. So, although net, although that you know Netflix has only one product, the, the streaming, whereas Amazon was saying, Amazon says, look, we we'll send stuff to your house, no charge, and we'll give you Netflix. For free as a bonus. Now what? Now how much will you pay? Uh, who's who's doing that? A- Amazon is saying you, you you get our you get our shipping bargain where we don't charge you for shipping, and we'll throw you in the equivalent of Netflix, and the equivalent of Spotify for, as a bonus. So you can get Amazon Music and you can get Amazon Videos, um, all for one sweet bundle price. We'll we'll raise it every once in a while, but. By that time, you're hooked and you'll pay it. So what do you think is the advantage for Apple of giving away? Uh, I mean, I think that the value proposition of short, uh, you know, scripted material is uh, not what uh, a lot of people seem to think it is. Well, I don't I don't know what the you know, exactly what their program lineup will be when they uh, when they unveil this. You know, I don't know what is, I don't know the running time of the episodes or, or how they bundle up into series, so it's it's really hard for me to know what I think of it. Um, I I I wonder if it makes. I, it, one thing it will do, I think, is uh, if if people get hooked on this media bundle that comes with an Apple product, it will make the products stickier, because you know Apple's uh, everyone's revenue stream depends on people re-upping and trading in for when, you, when that moment comes that you decide to replace your phone, you've got that opportunity to switch platforms. Uh, and they, that's the one thing that Apple does not want you to do. So if they, if they make staying with the platform sweeter, um, they make their whole proposition stickier as we used to say. Right. Well, I think the um, uh, subscription model that uh, Apple uh, employs with, uh, you know, basically after you get a two-year contract, but after a year, uh, right. when they come out with a, the next uh, version, you can essentially, for a, a small additional fee, you can upgrade. Uh, and I, yeah. I think that is what the Apple Prime model is, is right there. It's, but so how much more do they need to sweeten it with a, a, a set of TV series? Well, the, you're you're asking the right question, which is, you know, I don't know that it's. I think they already have the uh, the model, uh, and the question is, is uh, how is that particular additional content or uh, you know view into the time that we allocate uh, to these devices, which I think is really what the battle is about. Uh, you know. So one possibility is that you only get this media bundle if you subscribe to the hardware upgrades. 
I don't know if that's what they're going to do or if anybody who buys an iPhone gets the media bundle. Well, I think effectively that will encourage it. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, I have a subscription to this uh, tech uh, uh, information site called, surprisingly, The Information. Yeah. And uh, they recently they started a newsletter uh, that is focused on the uh, crypto and Bitcoin ICO uh, environment. And they basically convinced, uh, among others, me, who had, you know, been basically paying. It's it's expensive uh, service, but uh, I, yes. I like it because it, uh, among other things, they started a, a newsletter uh, on a daily basis called Briefing, which basically summarizes uh, uh, other content around the network uh, so that you can sort of keep ahead of uh, having to, uh, you know, look at Nuzzle or uh, some of these uh, aggregators and try and figure out what's interesting. You can sort of get a Classics Comics version of it uh, right away. And it's pretty astute. The, uh, the writers there are smart. But in any case, the uh, uh, it, it like it's a $40 a year uh, a month uh, subscription. And what they did was uh, it costs less per month to get an annual subscription. And what they did then was to throw into uh, the annual subscription the uh, newsletter, uh, the crypto newsletter. Right. So, it, it, you know, you're paying less, you're getting more. Uh, to me, that's the dynamic that we're starting to see here. Uh, in terms of that's that's you know that's that's standard merchandising. If you buy more, you get a lower unit cost. Everybody does that. Well, uh, that's not that's not a real innovation. You get the giant economy size of anything. Well, I'm not so sure that's, what the, that's that's Costco. That's Costco's model, right? Here. Well, Costco is uh, one of my favorite get, stores. Get more toilet paper than you can carry, and we'll sell it to you cheap. Okay. And a TV big enough to be able to uh, be ready for the next, uh, you know, prime update. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a glorious circle if, in fact, we survive this election. So, any uh, wrap up comments? Uh, we've been all over the map here, and I kind of enjoyed it. Yes, yes, we have. Um, no, the future the future is is glorious and wonderful. Just stay out of those automatic cars. <laughs> All right, Michael Markman, thank you. Thank you.